Ward number six is one of the strangest stories of Chekhov's that I've read. It is essentially Chekhovian, but it's also a pretty pessimistic story. The action follows a doctor whose name is Andrei Yefimich, and we will refer to him as Andrei in the course of the story. He's the doctor who's responsible for this hospital in a small town. And ward number six is the place where the, I guess what would have been described as mental patients, patients with some type of psychological disorder for which there was no treatment are kept. And they're kept mostly like prisoners. So Chekhov begins the story by describing each of the prisoners slash mental patients who are assigned to ward number six, as well as its warden, a tyrannical kind of authoritarian former soldier who enjoys beating the residents to maintain order. And then it follows this doctor and some of the friendships or associations that he makes in the town and in the hospital over the course of, it's, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, it might be six months, it might be a year. It's some discrete portion of time. And he's been at the hospital for 20 years. And we get to follow him as he becomes increasingly dissatisfied both with the material conditions in the hospital and ward number six, and also the conditions of his life. And the more time he starts spending time in ward number six, and the more time he spends there, the more detached he becomes from his official responsibilities and from his friends. And the end of this short story is that he dies after being uh, assigned himself to ward number six. It's a really challenging story. And I was talking, uh, Mike and I were talking about it yesterday a little bit. It just kept, when I say challenging, I, I don't mean in technical terms. It's beautifully written. It's very well organized. It is Chekhovian. It is an enjoyable read from the perspective of craft. Um, but there's really, there's nobody that you see in the story who, where you think to yourself, I would like to be that person, or I hope that's, I'm that type of person. It's all people who, who, who are deeply flawed. Yeah, so that's my intro. It's a strange story too, in terms of the structure. It opens up like kind of like you said, telling us who's in the ward, right? And it uses the second person, the you, like kind of taking us a tour of it. And then it gives the story, like it's gonna become this guy, uh, Ivan's story, one of the patients in the ward. And it tells his background. And this is still in the first like 10, 15 pages. And then it switches to Andre and becomes his story. And so there's this weird kind of movement within it, which breaks the rules of what we think of as short stories generally, uh, which is striking. I also wanted to say, I wanted to quote from section three, when we are introduced to Yvonne before it switches to Andre the doctor. And I find it funny because Chekhov gives, I wouldn't say the thesis, but kind of like the problem. This is like Ivan sees the problem of this world. And then the rest of the story becomes like kind of meditating on what you do with this. And Ivan, one of the patients, right, who ends up in the madhouse it, in a, the beginning of section three, it talks about kind of his descent into what people call madness uh, that makes him um, one of the madmen in ward number six. And he's thinking about government and just society and living in this world. And he says, those who take an official business-like attitude towards other people's suffering, like judges, policemen, doctors, from force of habit, as time goes by, become callous to such a degree that they would be unable to, to treat their clients otherwise than formally, even if they wanted to. 
In this respect, they are no different from the peasant who slaughters sheep and, and calves in his backyard without noticing the blood. With this formal, heartless attitude towards the person, a judge needs only one thing to deprive an innocent man of all his property rights and sentence him to hard labor time. And then it talks about only the time to observe formalities. And, and is it not ridiculous to think of justice when society greets all violence as a reasonable and expedient necessity and any act of mercy an acquittal, for instance, provokes a great outburst of dissatisfied, vengeful feeling. And then this kind of drives Yvonne insane, this fact of society. That section ends with him being kind of carried away to ward number six. But then the real story begins, and that's Andre, the doctor, and his kind of wrestling with Yvonne's early epiphany, or whatever you want to call it, or his madness. I just kind of want to throw that out, because that's just such a strange structure to me. Like, he's saying, like, here's the problem. There's no way out for Yvonne. Like, how does Andre enter into this? How does the doctor solve this? Or does he? Or um, I'm not quite sure what Chekhov is doing, but it was striking to me. Right, Mike, I noticed the same thing you did. It, it starts off in the second person, but not only second person, it, it also starts in the present tense in the very first part. And then the entire rest of the story is many different sections, like 20 or so, uh, where it's all in the past tense. And it's like going back in time and telling a story. And it is a, a interesting structure from a craft point of view is we start with this Yvonne who we're made to think will be the main character basically. And we get his whole life story and uh, it's quite sad. He becomes paranoid by seeing police and uh, they're bringing somebody to prison. And he starts to basically lose sleep and kind of go crazy thinking they're gonna carry him off one day. Just, you know, he was uh, completely paranoid. And uh, in the end, he ends up being put in this mental prison. And we think that's gonna be kind of the point of the story. But really, like you said, I think it's just kind of a first, uh, you know, look into this part of the society Chekhov's examining, which is the, the insane asylum or what have you, the medical profession in Russia at the time. But that's his way, I think, of kind of dissecting the entire society itself of Russia and also philosophy and other things as we'll get to. But, you know, it's interesting as well that Chekhov himself was a doctor, a medical doctor. And the main character of the story, as we see after, ends up being this doctor, Andre. And then there's even a, few, a couple other doctors who were involved in the story. So I think what we, we have is definitely Chekhov's most overt example of really examining the entirety of his own society in sort of a political way, but just a social, the level of the society itself, the uh, institutions as well as I think we'll discuss, you know, various different philosophies of maybe himself and other prominent people that might've been mentioned in the story. But yeah, it's an interesting um, way that it's written by introducing one character we think will be the main person, but in the end, it's actually the doctor who we go into more detail. And uh, yeah, I think we could talk about that a bit more. And just to add real quickly, it, and so Yvonne does appear back in the story, but he's essentially, he's critical in the doctor, doctor's own descent into ward number six, the conversation with Yvonne. He's just a fascinating character and definitely in terms of like protagonist, Chekhov's kind of playing around here, doing a lot of fun stuff with the structure itself. From that perspective, you could say that part of the, perhaps part of the structure, the, the somewhat disorganized 
not in a craft level, very well organized, very well controlled, but apparently disorganized structure of the story in terms of perspective, in terms of tense, is part of that madness. And it's not clear at any particular point in the story who the story is exactly about. You don't really understand that until after the story is done because of that initial break, because first you're reading about one person, then you're reading about another person. And once you've built all the way up through ward number six, and you've read about all of the, you've read about the warden, and you've read about the inpatients, and you've read about Yvonne, who at that moment seems likely to be the main character, and you step out of that, and now you're stepping into another character, you realize that the process of reading it frustrates a fixed point of view. And the point of view becomes very fungible, which is itself, I think, a characteristic of, you know, certain types of what they call madness. That's that you're not sure what the referent is. <laughs> you're, you're, you're trying to create a kind of meaning for yourself, but the meaning is being imposed on you externally in a variety of, of different ways. So from that perspective, uh, if, that, if, if that could be uh, how he decided to, to organize the story as a way of modeling the experience of losing one's sense of what is right. I like that a lot. I think, yeah, that fixed referent is like what we're seeking and how we say like this one's not mad and this is sanity, right? And there's something about this story that in a very Chekhovian way, like a sub, not like an over the top, but it kind of refuses that referent and kind of plays with your attempts at it. And rereading it this morning, I was thinking a lot, like right the opening section, it says, um, like is describing ward number six and says, on them sit, lie the people in the blue hospital gowns and old fashioned nightcaps. These are madmen. And the paragraph ends with just that three set, or three word sentence. And the story opening with that, like these, this is what we located here, right? But yeah, then the whole thing becomes this kind of unfolding where we lose that referent about madness. And you have to wonder at the end of this, whoever reads this story, which character is sane, you know, like what, looking at all the ones outside war number six, like what is madness? And I think Chekhov is using the structure to consider and play with these notions of sanity. Jumping in on that really quickly. Uh, I see David wants to say something to you. I just want to add to that. If you go before to, in my version, it's not madmen, it's lunatics. Men in blue hospital dressing grounds wearing nightcaps in the old style are sitting and lying on them. These are the lunatics. Even before that, you have the very first person to whom you're introduced is Nikita, the warden. And I'm, I just want to very briefly read Chekhov's intro to him because I think this is important. He has a grim, surly, battered looking face, he's a former soldier, uh, overhanging eyebrows, which give him the expression of a sheepdog of the steps and a red nose. He is short and looks thin and scraggy, but he is of imposing in de deportment and his fists are vigorous. He belongs to the class of simple-hearted, practical and dull-witted people, prompt in carrying out orders who like discipline better than anything in the world. And so are convinced that it is their duty to beat people. He showers blows on the face, on the chest, on the back, on whatever comes first, and is convinced that there would be no order in the place if he did not. And so the, the lunatics or the madmen are lunatics or madmen, not just because of some type of mania or psychological disturbance or condition or disease that they have, but also on another level, because they are the people that it is permissible for him to be, basically when he wants to without any justification. And he is the person who beats them because they are the people 
who are capable of, who are able to be beaten by him. You know, you're, if you're in ward number six, you become this, your definition is established essentially. And so the first order to which we're introduced, the first uh, world schema is that of Nikita, the warden who can beat you if you, if you happen to be assigned there. And there are other people, there's Yvonne's idea about the world, there's Andre's idea about the world. There are these other characters who have sort of conceptions of the world and how that is and, and, and what determines it. But the very first conception of the world to which we're introduced is that of the lunatics and the warden. I don't mean to say that that gives it any type of primacy of place because this is also a short story that is intentionally bereft of reference. It's just, that's the war, that's ward number six. You know, if you were to walk by it, if you were to see it, that's what it is. It's a warden and some, a certain type of prisoner that is beaten by, that are beaten by the warden when the warden feels like it. Right, and this Nikita, as you said, Adrian, is, um... Yeah, he's the first named character. My translation describes him as the porter, not any sort of official or um, commandant, but the porter. But he's actually the only other person in there with the so-called lunatics. There's only five of them, by the way. So five total lunatics plus this Nikita, who basically is the only guy who keeps them from not leaving. And what he does is by showering them with blows wherever his fists fall first. Yeah. And so he just represents kind of the violent idiot of society who goes along with, you know, authority and discipline and uh, yeah, just uses violence. And he has no other place in the story, basically, except to let in the doctor and then beat the inmates daily. The language of this whole first part where it gives a setting is really setting the stage, like there's this line, there are bedsteads screwed to the floor. And even that line about wearing nightcaps in the old style, you know, and then everybody's just sitting on the bed all day. These are the lunatics. And it definitely sets the stage for a, uh, not a happy story here. It's actually very cynical from the first part we get about Nikita being just a violent idiot, the sickly smell, you know, the old tattered dressing gowns, and every single character actually throughout the whole story, starting with Yvonne, who's the one upper class inmate and all the rest who are just other pathetic, childlike people. But uh, it's all very sad stories of they uh, had a life of squalor and they fell into some illness and poverty. And then it even comes to our main character who we'll get to, uh, Dr. Andre. For Chekhov himself, who you know, I've read a fair amount of his stories, like both of you. It definitely is his style, but it doesn't fit his normal message at all. It really strikes me it's different from other things by him I've read. Maybe some of his plays or a bit of a commentary on social issues of his day. But it's uh, very obviously a picture of society. It's a bit political. It's very cynical, which his stories can be, but it's much longer and also more detailed, uh, very deep into character, more than, you know, I think almost anything of his that I've read. And uh, it feels like it's probably one of his most important stories. Even uh, just as I'll add this throw in, you know, as I peruse the Wikipedia page on the story, there's even this uh, mention that, uh, yeah, it's important. But Vladimir Lenin said that this story made him a revolutionary that's included. I think you probably saw that. And he's, there's a quote apparently by Lenin, which is, 
I absolutely had the feeling that I was shut up in Ward 6 myself. Here's Vladimir Lenin, who always seems to be connected to various cultural things of this time period. I think it's an important story from uh, a guy who was well-known and well-read in Russia and across Europe at the time. I want to say about Nikita that there is one other thing. He's, it's, so he is the first to be introduced, but he, does, he also has the last... Uh, he's the last character, he's the second to last character to act with any amount of agency in the score, in the story, which is he beats Andre for the first time and precipitates the doctor's death from uh, a despair or ap apoplexy or whatever else. Or maybe he's just been beaten so heavily that he dies from the beating. I think there's something important about that, that you are introduced to this idea that if on a certain level, ward number six is a kind of microcosm for how society actually operates the truth of society. You have the person who is capable of imposing violence and letting some people leave and other people not because one of the, one of the lunatics is actually permitted to leave and sort of roams the town. He's this Jewish factory owner. The, the, the factory burned down. He lost everything, lost his mind. And so now he is permitted to leave ward number six to walk around the town and beg for alms, which Nikita then steals from him when he returns from the town. So that's the, that's the context. And then at the very end of the story, the doctor who is finally placed into that world and into Nikita's power, the very first thing that happens to him, you know, his first day there, demands to be let out, he is beaten heavily, and he dies. And when we talk about Chekhov's structure, and there, that bookend is important. It opens with him and ends with Nikita, right? And, the, and like, like you said, the word agency there, one form of agency always is, is violence. And I love how Chekhov associates order with Nikita, like he's the enforcer of order. And like when we think about madmen or lunacy or, and society order versus disorder, Nikita's crucial role in terms of how we're understanding. Um, and he seems just like the porter, right? I like how that translation has the porter. He's not important, but I think he is maybe essential to Chekhov's point. This is something you have to wrestle with, the, the fact of Nikita and as kind of the enforcement mechanism um, of this war number six. And that's important. Yeah, and also I think because Nikita himself is a nobody, but he's an agent of society who, you know, is just delegated to this one guy it could have been anybody but he has a penchant for violence so you know these the people who are uh admitted into the the ward are, are not socially desirable you know and they're not accepted into society for various reasons there's nowhere else to put them of course you know and it's a very primitive place i think in russia at the time as far as medical and mental health issues obviously the people, even if they somehow snuck by Nikita and made their way out of the, the building, you know, they wouldn't have found a place back in society anywhere. It was, that was kind of what, what led to the doctor's end when he realized that. But I think maybe we should get to our main character, the doctor of the small town uh, that this is set in. His name is Andre. Andre Yefimovich Ragin, as usual with all the, the Russian works of literature. You know, we have to have the name and the patronymic, which gets, for me, it's a, quite tiresome to always try and keep them all together and remember. But um, we have this doctor who is clearly an intellectual, intelligent man, I suppose, but seems generally apathetic about everything, right? He's, uh, 
he's well read and but he didn't really care about becoming a doctor i believe he wanted to become a priest but the father didn't want to and he's become a doctor and he's uh living in this small town helping people but not really helping people it turns out he he doesn't really care about the welfare of the people he's increasingly apathetic and cynical i believe about his entire job it turns out that what does he even really like to do i think he reads and he wants to have a good conversation with somebody he doesn't seem to have much ambition for anything at all and uh he's an interesting strange character to really get a read on right and that's the whole point of the story i believe it's funny because when he's introduced in section five he's reduced as a remarkable man in his way like Chekhov describes him as and like you said you have the bit where he wanted to be a priest or do the theological academy but his do- his dad said not a chance and pushed him into science just weirdly connecting to nikita and i made a note of this last read through is when we're introducing nikita it's described as like his fists are enormous like that's what we get like it says but his fists are enormous so like it's a detail that Chekhov gives us like okay this is going to come back to Chekhov's gun type stuff um and it does but then you have with Andre it says tall and broad shoulders he has enormous hands and feet it looks like one whack of his fist would be lights out but he walks softly it's such a weird little thing to insert as an opening description like it's not the first thing I think of like look at your fist how big they are can they knock someone out um but Chekhov does that and he's pushing us and it makes us makes me think about Andre, right? We have we have talking about agency and whatever Chekhov is doing with him, he has this potential, right? He has these fists. He he could be use violence or use force or partake, but like you said, David, he doesn't interact with the world or engage with it for whatever reason. And that's kind of the mystery of the story to me. And he's strange as this last read through, I, I thought, I mean, there's no so no romantic relationship in his life. There's nothing along those lines completely left out like his whole life. And another thing he also loves to do is drink a lot. We should mention that like he he's um, a tippler. And as he's reading, he's constantly drinking and he's looking for that conversation. He needs something, a new and original conversation, he claims, and which he ends up finding with Yvonne or thinks he finds with Yvonne. And I find hilarious that Yvonne wants nothing to do with him. It's like one of these you hope there's going to be a connection there. But Chekhov's like, no, not going to happen. And the last thing too is like just how disgusted he is by the town that he's assigned to, provincial town, and the hospital, and not just ward number six, but everything is described in this like horrible manner. Just the smell, the people interacting, everyone's stealing, everyone's fake, the nurses getting drunk with the patients, just bugs everywhere. It just sounds like a complete mess that he's entered into. And and he reacts with like a moral disgust to it. But it's important, I feel, for Chekhov that he chooses to retreat from that. And he says he just stops going to the hospital eventually. So he has this kind of moral, he's not like Nikita's or like most everyone else in this town who seem okay with it, but he also chooses to retreat from it. We have to kind of think about what Chekhov is doing there. There's this part in the beginning when we're being, I think, introduced to him, we're being introduced also to his arc within the town and his like his arc of self-understanding. And in my version, it says um, this is describing his sort of like his his fall from optimism in medicine to disillusion. At first, Andrei Yefimich worked very zealously. He saw patients every day from morning till dinner time, performed operations, and even attended confinements. 
The ladies said of him that he was attentive and clever at diagnosing diseases, especially those of women and children. But in process of time, the work unmistakably wearied him by its monotony and obvious uselessness. Today, one sees 30 patients, and tomorrow they have increased to 35, the next day, 40, and so on from day to day, from year to year, while the mortality in the town did not decrease and the patients did not leave off coming. To be any real help to 40 patients between morning and dinner was not physically possible, so it could but lead to deception. If 12,000 patients were seen in a year, it meant, if one looked at it simply, that 12,000 men were deceived. To put those who were seriously ill into wards and to treat them according to the principles of science was impossible too, because though there were principles, there was no science. If he were to put aside philosophy and pedantically follow the rules as other doctors did, the things above all necessary were cleanliness and ventilation instead of dirt, wholesome nourishment instead of broth made of stinking sour cabbage, and good assistance instead of thieves. And indeed, why hinder people dying if death is the normal and legitimate end of everyone? He becomes cynical and jaded partly because of the context. One of the things that's troubling about this story to me is the practical advances of medical science in our own country and in the world have been met by a great development of corporate interest and a focus on profit. So what we have today in the United States is not terribly different from this or would be much more similar to it, at least in terms of doctors seeing patients and burning out. You know, Physician burnout is actually this thing that people talk about because if you're an honest and searching person and, and you understand that what people need is something beyond the medicine, is something beyond what you're giving them and they keep coming back and they keep having problems that you can't seem to fix in any type of way, then the inevitable conclusion is that, as he says, you know, you're, you're deceiving people. That, that part, if 12,000 patients were seen in a year, it meant if one looked at it simply that 12,000 were deceived. That's just his perspective. But that I think is the key to how he personally becomes disillusioned. He is also a person who dodges agency when and wherever possible. So this is a person of intellect, of intelligence. He seems curious about medicine and science in the world, but when given an opportunity to do anything about it, he's the primary doctor of this hospital, he does nothing. And throughout the book, he avoids making decisions even up until the very end. Even in ward number, uh, when, he's, when he's sort of in danger of being put in ward number six, he refuses to sort of take responsibility for his actions. And he, he goes there, he submits to go there pretty meekly. That long paragraph you read, Adrian, was basically the whole heart of the philosophy of the doctor, but it's kind of shows his whole descent from uh, a young, conscientious and attentive and hardworking doctor to very quickly, you know, becoming burnt out and oppressed by this thought. And it continues even, what is gained if some shopkeeper or clerk lives an extra five or 10 years? It's like, it's going through all these justifications that he's having in his head. And it, then it even goes to the second point. And actually, if they suffer a little bit before they inevitably die, that's not even a big deal either. Suffering is normal. And then it says, Pushkin suffered terrible agonies, 
poor Heine lay paralyzed for several years. So these, you know, famous poets and who suffered and why can't these normal peasants of the village suffer too? And what can I do? And oh, five or 10 years extra if I treat them is no big deal. And so he's completely, you know, quickly bogged down by these uh, thoughts and then just becomes kind of a lazy and almost nihilistic doctor. Like, you know, he's uh, clearly not following the Hippocratic Oath. Yet we get the idea that this is even more than a reflection on this character, but it's definitely the whole society of Russia. I think he's, uh, he's talking about here and judging probably even more than the medical field. And, you know, the, these types of institutions, which we can imagine were probably fairly primitive in Russia in the late 1800s also, but even the sort of intellectual environment of people like this doctor or like Chekhov, who was obviously an intellectual and a doctor, who felt stifled from um, being able to live their fullest life. And, you know, suffering was something all around them in the society. And it's very poor and reactionary. Yeah, he's setting up sort of a, the main heart of the story, I believe, which is a reflection on the social problems of the day. And to pick up on that really quickly, because you mentioned nihilism, uh, again, when Mike and I were talking yesterday, we were, we were talking a little bit about the, I think it's the first argument that Andre has with Yvonne that sort of like pulls him in. If it's not the first one, it's, it's the, one of the first consequential ones. And Yvonne essentially says, look, you want to be a stoic or you think of yourself as the stoic person who's sort of enduring this life that is displeasing to you but you haven't suffered. So you have no real conception of stoicism. Andre's understanding of himself and his suffering exists in a bubble before he meets Yvonne, a, a bubble that he creates for himself. Um, and I think it's possible that, that one of the things that he, he desires as a character, that his character desires is to be diagnosed himself. And so one of the things that's so compelling about Yvonne in conversation with Yvonne is that Yvonne essentially says, look, your conception of your, of your problems is incorrect. You think of yourself as a stoic, you think of yourself as a, a fatalist. You actually believe in nothing and you believe in nothing because you've never been challenged. And this got me thinking today, I had this idea that because religion keeps coming up in the story as well. And, and specifically Andre's sort of past desire to be uh, a priest, that this sort of early potential of his. And of course, there's a desire to sort of find a reading or a, like a, a way of understanding a character that, that's totalizing. And I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do here. But I do think that one way to understand Andre's character arc is he goes into this problem because he's been alienated from religion and apart from the, his introduction as a person who was interested in being part of the priesthood, but ends up being a doctor because of pressure from his father. The other reason I say this is, is because near the end of the story, he actually starts going to church and he doesn't want to leave church. Uh, this is right before he's sent to, to the ward. He goes there, he enjoys the singing. He, he, there's something about going to church that he likes. And it would be very, it's, it's very easy to, opt to, to, to say, to observe that him going into the priesthood, he probably would have been the type of priest that 
was analogous to the type of doctor that he was. You know, this isn't actually good. Like being in the institution of the church wouldn't have been fundamentally different from being in the institution of medicine because both of those institutions were essentially, you know, corrupted at, in Russia at that time. And some would say are essentially corrupted today, uh, which is not the argument that I'm trying to make. But I do think that, you know, the suffering part of it, this, this, this idea that Andre, that Yvonne gives to Andre, which is that you have not suffered, which is probably something that, the, that Andre like has in the back of his head somehow, that like, yes, I'm, I'm not doing this thing that I should be doing in this way. There is a way to do this that I'm not doing. Maybe if there is like a deeper, more, somehow more optimistic uh, level to the story that I have hitherto been in, like incapable of accessing, it's somewhere in there, not necessarily institutional religion, but a healthy relationship with suffering that isn't purely rational, that isn't captured by some type of philosophical or religious schema, but just a way of existing with life as it is. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I like you're making some great connections in terms of his own failure to act. And I think the key word might be faith rather than religion. In the story as a whole, Chekhov is scathing about the religious types. I think that's kind of something worth noting, you know, like the, the falseness of every character who claims to be religious. That's obvious also to Andre, like he picks up on that and it's kind of what oppresses him as well. But the first, like one of the first sentences describing Andre, and this is funny to me because I just don't think you could, when you write a short story today, I don't know my experience, you don't write them like this. And he says, Andre is extremely fond of intelligence and honesty, but he lacks character and faith in his right to organize an intelligent and honest life around him. Like that sense to me seems to, that's the story. I mean, that's, that's everything that happens in the story just unfolds, you know, in one sentence, like he told us it already. And that way it becomes this kind of like Greek tragedy or whatever, like here's the plot, you know, everything's going to happen and let's watch it happen. He doesn't have the character or faith and that doesn't have to do religion specifically. He doesn't have faith enough to organize a world around him and to kind of take that agency. Reading the story is depressing, like you said, David and Adrian, I mean, because it doesn't seem like any of the characters really do. And I could see Lennon having this reaction to this story after reading it, that kind of violent anger almost. And there's one other thing I wanted to point out about, you're talking about the, the suffering angle. And David, you also talked about like his reasoning. His, he goes to the hospital and how he reasons himself to his position where he just stops going and, and drinks all day and reads books and looks for good conversation. To me, when I read that, I'm, I'm struck by Chekhov mocking. I think it's kind of hilarious, like how motivated reasoning works in our heads. Like when we want to use reason to convince ourselves of something that we want to be convinced of, and we call it reason, and how he uses essentially like people are going to die anyway, so what's the point of helping them? But then that move to that next step about suffering, where he says Pushkin suffered and he wrote these great poems, and so suffering's a good. Like there seems to be this like massive jump there that is in no way reasonable of uh, going from saying like people die and I can't help to saying like suffering's an act of good. And I really appreciate when he has that conversation with Yvonne in Ward number six, like the first time he gets all excited. And Yvonne is a character because he calls like Andre calls himself a stoic, right? And he's saying like suffering is actually a good thing for us. Yvonne's like, you're a moron, like suffering sucks. He's like, suffering sucks and we should remember it always sucks. I don't like to suffer. And he says, life is, is gorgeous. And I was talking to you about this, Adrian, yesterday. It's kind of brilliant. I mean, because Yvonne is insane. He's in the asylum. And he, but he knows and he's saying like, I love life. Like I wouldn't be here if I wasn't insane. And 
that to me, there's some movement there for Chekhov, which in some level is comic, but also true and Chekhovian in the truest sense to me that he, he loves life. There's still this love, this deep well of love for life. And Andre has convinced himself that life is suffering, that life is meaningless. And, and I just think that's really important to see how Yvonne resists. But yet at the same time, Yvonne is insane, right? He's trapped too. And, but at least he's aware of it. Well said. To me, Yvonne is one of the most sympathetic characters in the story, for sure. Almost the hero, in a way. We have this first conversation between Andre and Yvonne when uh, the doctor finally visits the ward. And it turns out that uh, Yvonne, you know, delighted the doctor by his theatrical movements and by actually pushing back on his cliched, you know, the stuff he tells people normally day to day, you know, like, don't worry about it. There's nothing you could do to change your situation. And oh, if you're in pain or suffering, that's just how things are. But, you know, Yvonne pushes back on this and is like, yeah, you're an idiot. And then he starts, you know, actually piquing his interest a bit more by, you know, name dropping intellectual figures and writers. And then they have this actually quite deep conversation, but Yvonne continues pushing back, very sarcastic, ironic way. It uh, pushes Andre out of his normal routine and it kind of captures him and it actually leads to his downfall as we'll see. When Andre is just talking about, you know, just nothing you could do to fix your situation. Yvonne has this quote, which is interesting. Somebody, oh, I don't believe in immortality. Somebody in Dostoevsky or Voltaire said that there, if, if there had not been a God, men would have invented him. That's already a very interesting quote, I think, in a meta level from Chekhov, who's having this other sort of philosophical dialogue, possibly. Later, you know, the doctor mentions Diogenes, who was happy just living in a bathtub and was happier than all the kings of Earth. And Yvonne says, no, Diogenes was a blockhead. And, you know, I, I don't want to stay here in this prison. I love life. I think later, it wasn't here, but he said something like, well, if Diogenes had lived in the Russian winter, he wouldn't have lived outside in a tub. You know, he lived in Greece where it's sunny and he could just eat olives and figs all day. There were actually pretty great conversations in a way that Chekhov is creating between these two characters with Ivan, who's the inmate, who's upper class and educated, but he's like, he's not buying the doctor's uh, medicine. You know, he, he's not, he doesn't accept the apathetic, banalities the doctor dishes out to the normal peasants he sees and you know he's like no i don't want to be here i don't deserve to be here i love life i'm also a person and i think that already is a pretty big statement and a commentary on the whole situation especially the fact that ivan is indirectly the reason for andre's later admission into this ward and and then his death soon thereafter I want to say really briefly a little bit, uh, I want to get into this, this conversation that uh, Mike and I had yesterday about like the magic circle or the enchanted circle, because I think that touches on what you just said, David, a, a kind of a way of thinking or an awareness of a way of thinking. Uh, so at the very end, there's this conversation that really jumped out to me between Andre and Mikhail. And Mikhail is a friend of Andre's he, he had been, he's another one of these people who had been an aristocrat, but he fell into ruin somehow. He has a gambling problem, um, but also seems sincerely attached to Andre and try, takes him on a trip 
tries to uh, get him better in the way that he knows how. Um, Andre develops a great loathing for him because he's uncultured and a gambler and just sort of, uh, because he's a flawed person. Mikhail is trying to convince Andre to turn himself in for treatment to the hospital. Mikhail says, uh, give me your word, my dear man, that you will obey Yevgeny Fedorich and everything. And Andre says, certainly I will give you my word, but I repeat, my honored friend, I have got into an enchanted circle. Now everything, even the genuine sympathy of my friends leads to the same thing, to my ruin. I am going to my ruin and I have the manliness to recognize it. My dear fellow, you will recover, says Mikhail. What's the use of saying that, said Andrei Yefemovich, Yefimich, with irritation. There are few men who at the end of their lives do not experience what I'm experiencing now. When you are told that you have something such as diseased kidneys or enlarged heart and you begin being treated for it, or are told you are mad or a criminal, that is, in fact, when people suddenly turn their attention on you, you may be sure you have got into an enchanted circle from which you will not escape. You will try to escape and make things worse. You had better give in for no human efforts can save you. So it seems to me. This idea of magic circles, one of the things that Mike and I were talking about yesterday was, was how there is circular logic in the story and there's, Andre's conception of the enchanted circle, this sort of fundamental idea where there's a conspiracy against you or, or there's, there's a kind of energy or attention that enmeshes you, which is convenient to him because he doesn't like to make decisions for himself. The, the first circle, the most conspicuous example of, an, of a circle that we encountered is the, the circularity of the sort of the narrative and the logic around Ivan himself. He, he gets this idea that he might become imprisoned against his desires in, in some type of unjust way or unjust way, Conv essentially convinces himself of this, drives himself mad and is imprisoned against his desires. So he, he creates this magic circle for himself and becomes entrapped within it. There's another thing that I wanted to bring up that we didn't talk about yesterday, Mike, reference enchanted circles or circles in general, which is that and this feels very like a very college English type observation. So I'm almost embarrassed to make it, but it was brought up earlier, which is that Andre isn't married. And I don't think there are any conspicuously married people in the story. Yvonne doesn't get married. And so there's also the magic circle could be the wedding ring. Doesn't that feel like a, a college English type observation? I guess I must still have that neuron firing in my head. It's like, this, this, there's no circle. <laughs> yeah, that might, that might be reaching a little bit. I'm not sure if Chekhov was, was going that route. The Enchanted Circle. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to say about Enchanted Circles or, or Andre's conception of being trapped in, a, in an Enchanted Circle is that the entrapment itself seems to activate or seems to achieve some type of power when one becomes aware of it. So you mentioned the, me the meta-level narrative, and I think that's on, on some level, Yvonne becomes aware of this problem and becomes ensnared in the problem of which he becomes aware. And it's the same with, with Andre. And so he, Andre phrases it as though it's a problem of other people. Other people become aware of you and then you get caught, but actually he's sort of created the context himself for it. 
Yeah, it sounds a lot more like just a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, or um, a fatalistic view of things in general, which the doctor definitely subscribes to. But yeah, he created it for himself, for sure, by visiting the mental health ward, not just once, but continuing to go every day until people started noticing. And then they said, well, he's going every day, so I guess we need to put him there, too. And basically, that's what it comes down to, that you know, the, these people were um, social outcasts of some of various types, and the doctor enjoyed going there more than doing his normal, boring and pointless routine. And so the people of the town ganged up together and had secret meetings and then just put him there too. That's kind of the heart of the whole story. I was just thinking also, as you were talking, what I had thought before, it reminds me um, in some ways of Tolstoy's novella, uh, The Death of Ivan Illich. And it's kind of a similar type of realization about yourself and your own suffering and your life. And was it pointless or not? Or what could I have done differently? But it seems like, you know, after you are aware of this problem that happens, then things could start to change. Maybe they continue to get worse and you die, like in both cases, actually, of the characters. But in some way, you've also... Um, at least achieve something, which is the awareness itself, instead of being stuck in this vicious circle of basically doing nothing, being cynical and apathetic, or living a pointless bureaucratic life. At least you had some, you gained some higher consciousness and uh, you grew as a person somehow before you inevitably died. And I don't know, I think there's something there philosophically about Chekhov also commenting a bit on, uh, on philosophical issues and whether it really is pointless to do anything for good in the world or to actually live a life and help people. And, you know, I feel like he's also a little bit of commentary on Tolstoy, the person and the author by Chekhov here, who I think I might've seen mentioned somewhere, though I didn't read up on this much, that the doctor is somehow a little bit of a stand-in for Tolstoy and, you know, the, uh, and Chekhov himself was pushing back on that against this view of life. But anyway, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of levels to this story. That's brilliant. I love that connection to Tolstoy. And it's kind of, as we think about closing, it's kind of maybe connecting here. I haven't read Death of Ivan Illich in forever, but the framing is funny to me. And thinking about what you said too, Adrian, in the death of Ivan Illich, like it's, it's the end of his life that he realizes all of your things are right, more or less, like it comes to his conclusion and, and the awareness versus what's funny about Chekhov, it's the opposite. It's like the beginning of their lives, it seems, or at least the beginning of the story as we're introduced, it's already fraudulent. It's already, they're aware of that magic circle or enchanted, whatever you want to call it, the circle of reason. Like it really feels like it's this like vicious dialectic that kind of forces life to become what they believe it to be. And, and sometimes like this is like a depressing story, but other times I read this story and I think for Chekhov anyways, he seems to be pointing out that we form our own realities in terms of like these magic circles that we choose to enter into, that we create and life does mirror what we create, right? Like the dialectic that Andreas shaped for himself does end up happening in his life. To me, in the spaces between the story and the, the way that it's there from the beginning, and then we see it in Yvonne, and we see it in so many different characters, that these are almost human choices to make this their reality. 
and if it is pushing back against Tolstoy, I, I'm not well read enough in Tolstoy to say this, but it's not something that you come as an epiphany. For Chekhov, it's like, this is the epiphany that ends up destroying their lives. Like this structure, this circle um, that they've shaped and the agency to create something else or something different is abandoned by giving themselves over to whatever metaphysics or whatever circular logic a scheme of exist existence that takes away the responsibility for existence, if that makes sense. And the characters kind of seek that out. And Ivan um, seems to resist it a little bit and is trapped, but he's also part of that problem, right? He, like you said, Adrian, he shaped like his persecution complex, right? And he ended up there. Everyone ended up where they were from the beginning because they shaped the world in that way. The question for me then is like, was that just them? Is the doctor the doctor, right? He is someone who has no faith in agency or is this something that he failed to do the fact that all these characters form these realities is exciting in a way because that means that we can form different realities right we have that option we could do that with and they all say like we need like that they end there like nothing human can get us out of the circle right nothing human but i think Chekhov is pushing about like the human put us in that circle and so something human can get us out of that too like and that's the joke he's playing with all these different characters and I would also argue that there are spaces of it, comedy in here. That, that there's a lot that gives me hope when I read Chekhov, you know, like the Mikhail character is hilarious, just to emphasize that if anyone ever reads that story. And I, I think he's a former like officer, soldier. And he's just so, he seems shallow on some, so many levels and it frustrates the doctor. But there's some sweet moments too, like when he asks for the money for the gambling and then Andre gives him all his money. Uh, and the doctor assumes that Andre's rich when he finds out he's not rich later like the doctor or the uh, Mikhail cries, like he weeps for his friend, like that someone could just give this away. And so there's these moments of surprise where these schema and understandings of existence as either fatalistic or necessary or fraudulent break down. I think Chekhov's really good about pointing about how we trap ourselves in them. Um, but the fact that we trap ourselves in them also goes to show that we can untrap ourselves, you know, like there's something there. Uh, and, and if it, to me, pushing back me against the Tolstoy metaphysics, because I know Tolstoy became very engaged with religion and metaphysics towards the end of his life. I think Chekhov is, is resisting that as part of the problem. That's another way of putting yourself in a schema, another dialectic that is going to be self-fulfilling prophecy, as you said, uh, David, like the, that ending with Andre, when he says, this is reality, when he's in the madhouse and he gets punched by Nikita, like suffering and pain is reality. But that's within the schema of his imagination, his dialectic, that is reality. Like he made it that way. But that was something he structured and it became true. And just makes me think how often in our own lives we do this constantly. And then we're like, look, true, like, look, it proved my point, but I made it happen that way. And that might provide comfort for a lot of people. But I think for Chekhov, it was, it was frustrating. I feel that frustration uh, in the story when I read it. It's a very human story, like uh, everything in Chekhov, but much more detailed. And it gets into the, the characters' details a lot more. But I think the humanity of Chekhov is, is here in the heart of the story. In a simple way, I guess we could sum it up as um, there's suffering in the world. And whether you're a doctor or anybody else, you could either choose to help people and uh, help alleviate the suffering and try to make the world a little bit better or you could uh, renounce that or ignore it. And basically, you know, we have that choice. 
in a way, it seems like an answer to this story in a, a couple different ways is uh, Camus with the plague, you know, as I know you guys know very well, you know, we have the doctor who chooses to alleviate suffering despite there probably being no hope. It's the complete opposite of uh, Chekhov's doctor here. And I think th um, they're both just examining uh, in some way what it means to be human and um, what things are like in our society of humans and what's good about it and what's bad, which is many things, but what can we do about it on an individual level? Well, maybe it's not that much, but should we at least do something or not? To me, it feels like that's really the heart of what this thing is, which itself is, is always very interesting, but strange for Chekhov. You know, he doesn't usually get this, this deep. You know, he doesn't usually give any sort of sense of his, his own standing on things. He just presents a situation and, and that's it. We have to think about it, but it's, it's very interesting. Yeah, thinking of, I love the Camus connection and you're right in terms of like, I guess wondering what people want. And as anyone's thinking about reading this story, like I always get a lot of Catch-22 vibes in here too, in terms of like the Madhouse and I feel Heller read this, but you're right. It's got this Camus understanding of, yeah, what do you do in this situation? And I, I have to believe someone like Camus read this story too. And I just wanted to touch on that one point too about the having a model like to follow in this. There is none. We talked about this yesterday, Adrian. Like there's no character that you're like, oh, that's the character I want to be like. I kind of love that because that's also resisting and bucking against any, when we talk about living your own life, right? When choosing and making your own choices, if there's something in there that you're like, this is the character I'm following, it's defeating the purpose, right? You're not like making those active choices to engage with the world around you and entering into that unknown, that kind of that, that true faith required to do that, just to become a person that isn't someone else. And then the other thing I wanted to point out too, I don't know for sure, you might know this better than I, Adrian or David, like Chekhov, like he continued his practice till the very end, right? Like he continued be, being a doctor. And I think that's really important to see him it, situating himself in all this, understanding the facts on the ground of society, but persisting in it is, is important to think about when we think about the author. And then a last point too, kind of circling back a bit is the, the idea of love, I don't know about wedding wing, rings, Adrian, but um, I do think the lack, the, the idea of the, not rom romance, but also just love is missing in this understanding of like interacting with people. And the, the absence is like a big presence for me in Chekhov. Like, I think this is, there's something to that, that uh, when we think about Andre and how he structured his reality, his universe, what he's left out of it and how these other characters have, they, they've created self-fulfillingly this world that's, that's absent of this. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that they've, they've kind of done that. And I just kind of want to throw that out too. Is that always that it, it kind of bothered me, but also is again, weirdly heartening because there might be ways out of war number six, possibly um, if we kind of take responsibility in that Camusian way. You know? I just wanted to make a couple quick final points. One of which being that the, I think the easiest way to understand the story or the way that I have understood this story is as a kind of polemic against enchanted circles, against, against heroes, against uh, an easy way of explaining to anybody that this is how you ought to be. And, and I think that both because it, it seems to be implied heavily throughout the story and also because if Andre is the main character 
and we're expected to travel through the story with Andre, this is the great flaw of Andre is that he's looking for an enchanted circle and ends up sort of finding one and 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 it, it does catch him and there is no way out of it. That's how he's wanted it, but that's how it is. And so having some type of explicit schema is is something that Chekhov seems very skeptical of. And I don't know if he's right or not. I mean, he might be wrong about that. He might be wrong. I mean, it could be that there is, you know, there are uh, uh, schemas for going through life that are effective ways of modeling good behavior. Um, if that's the case, there isn't room for that. that. That that isn't stated in this story. It isn't stated explicitly. And I think it is not state. I think it, that is a deliberate choice on Chekhov's part. I think that's the message: is just to be skeptical of those things, given that there is, you know, with goodness, with humanity, with humanism, with generosity, with kindness, there are clearly with loyalty, with friendship, there are there are spaces for goodness in this story. That's the first thing that I wanted to say. One quick thing I wanted to mention. I've been reading a lot of uh, Louis McNeese poems. I know he's a poet from the 1930s and I feel, uh, I wanted to read this, these two stanzas here that strikes me as this pertinent from a poem he has called London Rain. About halfway through the poem, he begins, he's kind of having this little dialectic about God or no God and the choices that you make in this world. He says, he concludes, the argument was willful, the alternatives untrue. We need no metaphysics to sanction what we do are to muffle us in comfort from what we did not do. Whether the living river began in bog or lake, the world is what was given, the world is what we make, and only we can discover life in the life we make. And if you ever have a chance to check out that poem, uh, London Rain, kind of meditating on a lot of kind of Andre Ivan questions, coming to this conclusion through art, through poetry, and then choices in our own life is enormously powerful and convincing to me as a way out of this annex or number six that we're almost always trapped in, I feel, that we trap ourselves in. Can I just mention one last quote too by uh, Dostoevsky, uh, precursor to Chekhov, of course, and very famous quote, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Such a, a deep statement right there, I think. I like that, yes. I think we should definitely end there, Adrian. And also it's, it's worth mentioning that in this story, the, the hospital is right next to the prison. So the prison is introduced as the space that's actually quite near to ward number six specifically. You can look out of the windows and see the prison. And obviously as a way of saying that this, what applies in the hospital in ward six also applies to, to criminal. And, and there are many uh, commonalities made between criminals and madmen, criminals and lunatics uh, as, as they're described there. The other thing that I, the, the, the final last, uh, last final point that <laughs> I wanted to throw in there was it also reminded me a little bit of a, one of the last stories by Mark Twain, the name of which eludes me, but the story is about these, it focuses on these children and it's widely seen, I believe, as a, a, a very uncharacteristically nihilistic story. Of, of Twain's and I think is not widely read as a result, although it's very well written. And I remember I read it in Afghanistan, very bad timing there. But the, the, the gist of it is these kids encounter Satan and Satan uh, is just sort of creating worlds and destroying them the way that the kids are creating sandcastles or, or playing. Satan, Satan is, you know, Lucifer 
It's like, let's play a game, let's play together. And then the, the, the game starts having all of these consequences in the real world, as I remember the story. It's been a little while since I read it. And the children are appalled. They have no conception of right or wrong. So to them, it's just very disturbing. And I think stories like this, it's, it's extraordinary that Lenin um, picked up on this and he probably had his reasons I, I, I doubt that he was looking at this as a, a, a story about how to resist ideology. <laughs> My guess would be if Lenin was going around talking about the story, it was more as an example of social injustice, which was much more present. But there is, like we mentioned earlier with Tolstoy's Ivan Ilyich, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, there are these really moving stories in which a person becomes the agent of their own downfall or in which uh, something that is assumed to be good or powerful or authority or an authority ends up being totally irrelevant and useless and powerless. And those are always some of the most challenging stories to me personally to read. It takes a long time for me to read them and I always end up sitting and thinking with them more. Uh, than stories where there is an explicit good, but they're always also at the same time that they're the most challenging, they're the least satisfying. And I feel now, even after having read the story a couple of times and having, having had this great conversation with you both, I, I don't feel any better for having read this story. I, 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 I really, I'm, I'm glad, glad that, that I read, I read the story, story, but, but I, I, there's, there's nothing, nothing at the end, end of it, it's just, just really, which which is really, really tough. tough. Better than the terrifying Mark Twain story that you just told us about, hopefully. That, yeah, that, that's that called the scary. that's called the mysterious stranger. By the way, it's one of his last oh, and, and strangest stories. But yeah, some similarities there. Yeah, I did this. This one didn't make me feel better, but that's usually the case with great literature. Uh, we we don't need to feel better about ourselves necessarily, but just um, aware of things at a, at a higher level, perhaps. David, you've spent too much time in Italy. You're basically an Italian citizen. Uh, here in America, our stories make us feel better and they justify the world around us, all right? That's, that's why it's called American literature. Okay, whatever you say. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, he's not an American anymore. Revoked. And Hemingway. And Hemingway, and Hemingway too. Way. Doubly for him. So there you go. He lived in Cuba. Mm -hmm.